We believe that alcoholism is a disease and that Alcoholics Anonymous is one solution to that disease. I'm here to bring you the voices of its members. Everyone that comes on the show, including myself, is an active member and has found recovery in the rooms of AA. As you listen, please take what works for you and leave the rest. Hi, my name is Lori and I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is May 18th, 1987. And I am talking to the window right now. <laughs> um, I'm just, I just have to get that awkward part out of the way and just confess that, you know, it feels a little awkward. It always feels a little awkward to talk at a meeting or to speak at a meeting. Um, but it, you know, it, it definitely feels a little awkward, different awkward to speak um, to the window, but at least I have a beautiful view. So there you have it. Um, so I got sober when I was 22 years old. And as the 12 and 12 says, um, you know, maybe I was nothing more than a potential alcoholic. People who, um, people who they, they say ha- they had to raise the bottom for in order to um, help those people who were potential quote unquote alcoholics to help them not have to suffer the last 10 or 20 years of drinking. Um, I think that's probably true. However, anyways, um, what it was like for me was that I, I was one of those people who were probably alcoholic from the get go. I was always the one, I always was a problem child. I always had a lot of emotional problems and from as early as I can remember, I wanted to die. I don't think I consciously had those thoughts, but I definitely consciously wanted to go away. I wanted to go away. I just wanted to not be here. It was very painful <laughs> to be me. Um, and like most kids, you know, I'm sure I was the most self-centered thing on the planet. But um I started out low. I started out low and um, I was, you know, dragging the bottom before I ever had a drink. I really wanted, I wasn't happy. Um, There was a lot of isolation and pain in my, my world. Just felt super, super isolated and alone. And I, I feel like that's such a typical alcoholic feeling. Um, so when I had my first drunk, I won't say my first drink, but my first drunk, I breathed a giant sigh of relief. I was so relieved to have found a solution to my problems. I, I was, um, I just clearly remember it was, you know, like a school dance and I had made a decision that I was going to get shit faced. And I did. I, I found some some people who wanted to do the same thing with me. And before they even arrived, I did the thing, you know, I pulled a bunch of bottles that were way up in a high cupboard that my mom never drank and mixed them all together. I have no idea what they were and drank it. 
big old tumbler, you know? And, um, I knew I, you know, and then went the friends arrived, they had a little crisis in the car. Cause somebody spilled something in the car. The, my, my friend who was driving had, uh, gotten some, some weed from her, from her, her brother, I think. And while they were busy doing that, I took, took, took a joint, went out in the backyard and smoked it. Never smoked weed before in my life and just went for it. It was like, I just fully made a decision to go all the way there. And as we were approaching this dance, that all that anxiety and all that fear and like, I could just breathe. And I remember clearly thinking, this must be how they feel all the time. This must be what everybody else feels is no fear. I didn't know I was feeling fear. I didn't know that I was having relief from anxiety. I just knew that I'd found my solution. And uh, I was so grateful. And of course, that first drunk was just a pretty much typical example of what drunks were like for me from then on. You know, it was all about, um, you know, making out with some guys I don't know, making a big scene. There was a band playing. I I actually ended up going to high school, a different high school with the band members later. But I, I, you know, had to be in front dancing, getting on stage, knocking over microphones, you know, like just being a general pain in the ass drunk. Um, I remember, you know, I was in and out of a blackout, but I didn't know what blackouts were. I just know now that that's what was happening. And I just remember somebody coming up to me going, Lori, hey, Lori, where's, I don't know, so-and-so. And I'm like, who's so-and-so? And he's like, the guy you were just making out with. <laughs> I'm like, uh, don't, you know, like, I don't remember that part. I do remember um, leaving with that guy and there's, you know, and uh, in and out of a blackout from then on, it was in and out of blackout, close on, close off. People probably in the room or outside. I don't know. I think I was at a park with my clothes off. I have no idea. Um, But that was, that was typical. That was just how it went for me. Um, You know, it always involved sex with somebody and it always involved, um, you know, being a uh, being a drunk, doing the things we do. So that following morning was my first experience with shame, the the shame and humiliation and uncomprehensible demoralization that comes with being drunk. And of course, I didn't know what that was, but I knew that I could never go back to that school again. <laughs> I I didn't know that at the moment, but I was like, I knew I felt worse than I normally did. I mean, I experienced shame all the time. Um, I experienced wanting to die all the time. It was a lot stronger. And of course, I was hungover. And as the, as time progressed, I, you know, and things happened at school from that incident. I just remember being like, I'm not going back to this school and that's it. I'll quit. If I have to, I was done. It was my first geographic, what, you know, what we call a geographic where I was trying to get away from myself, but I just was, you know, huh, trying to get away, trying to get away. And, um, one of those God shots, one of those situations where my, I was allowed to change schools and that was not something that my, my parents were 
hip to. They didn't let my sister do that. Um, so I was allowed to change school. And and I do think that saved me. That whole, um, in, a, in a sense, in a, a little bit. Um, and it, the, the, the situation where that I was in, I lived, I grew up in Long Beach. And then when I was in fifth grade, we moved to Seal Beach. And whatever that was, whatever things that I had wrong with me in my head became ex- exacerbated when we moved. Um, you know, I was a kid whose mom was a receptionist and my dad was a teacher. And we moved into a neighborhood where people drove Cadillacs and um, got their nails done. I, you know, I just didn't fit. And I, I didn't fit even more than I didn't fit before. And so, um, you know, that place was the problem in my mind. That place was the problem. I just needed to get back to my people in Long Beach. <laughs> And I did. And when I got to Long Beach, of course, I continued to be depressed and continued to drink all the time. But I was just a little less miserable. Um, So as soon as I started drinking regularly, you know, I became actively suicidal, um, wanting to die and really, really, really struggling. Um, The part of my life, you know, I, I discovered bulimia I was I I was taught about bulimia so that became a huge um, part of my disease and alcohol and whatever drugs were coming along and that's how I functioned and I didn't function very well I graduated from high school I dropped in and out of college I had a new job every six months um I wanted to die and I had a couple suicide attempts I ended up I ended up learning about this thing called recovery and Alcoholics Anonymous sort of by accident well obviously nothing's an accident but you know one of the times that I dropped in and out of college I used to walk past this see this yellow flyer I can still picture it. And it said women's AA meeting Tuesdays at 11 o'clock. I think that's what it said. Um, And I remember walking past it and walking past it. And it just jumped out at me every single time. And I didn't know what Alcoholics Anonymous was. So at some point, probably six months later, I was still enrolled in that school. And I um, got, I went to that meeting. I showed up and I really literally thought it was a class. So I had no idea, no concept. Um, so I'm sitting in this small room with, I don't know, probably 10 women and they were having a meeting and I kept raising my hand and interrupting and asking things like, wait, Oh, so there's a book. Is that at the bookstore? You know, like what, what, okay. And then what, I'm sorry, what, what do you mean by spot? Like, I didn't have any idea what a meeting was like. And those women, you know, I know they rolled their eyes, but they let me stay. They didn't yell at me. Nobody kicked me out. And at the end of the meeting, somebody gave me their group book with all of their phone numbers in it. I don't have that book. I'm sure I passed it on or lost it a long time ago. But um, but I didn't call anybody. And I didn't hear any solution in that meeting at all. I heard people talk, of course, because with my state of mind, I heard people talking about the problem. I didn't hear the solution. Um, but somebody in that meeting called me and checked on me. And she was my age and she told me about this thing called a treatment program that she checked herself into. I didn't know anything about that. And 
I checked. So what she told me about it was that, you know, I said, I can't check myself into treatment. I'm in school and I'm freaking failing. And she said, it's no problem. You can get this thing called a medical withdrawal from school and you don't fail those classes. You just get, you know, taken and complete, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, dude, that sounds great. You know, that sounds like an immediate solution to my immediate problem of, of drinking too much and failing. <laughs> and um, so I looked into it, you know, and I did end up going to a couple outside meetings, I think at the round table, was it the round table, the one on 4th Street, Long Beach? And I didn't, again, hear any solution. I didn't understand anything that I was hearing at all. Um, I just showed up there and of course I didn't stay sober and I'm, I'm sure that I was loaded when I got there. I'm sure I wasn't sober and I'm sure I went home and drank or got loaded, whatever. But the, the thing that, you know, hooked me was, Oh, well, there's, here's an escape route for my most immediate problem. And so I looked into these things called recovery programs and I ended up checking myself into an outpatient program at Long Beach Community Hospital they had at the time it was 30 day back in the old days when there was a 30 day inpatient treatment and um and I didn't plan on staying sober I didn't it was just one of those like things that we do when we're trying to get away from our pain or find a solution check myself in of course outpatient because I wasn't willing to commit to inpatient right and I and I did have to keep my job as a cocktail waitress, <laughs> of course, because who's going to pay my rent? And um, and one of the, you know, checking myself in wasn't a surrender at all. Um, and and interestingly enough, the the day before, the day before I checked my you know, plan, I was showing up at eight o'clock Monday morning, right? Sunday, I am. There's several events I need to attend. One of them is the party, the work party that we were was starting at 10 a.m. At, at a bar. And then the second one was the um, show I was going to that night. And um, I drank all day, all day from 10 a.m. Uh, I'm sure I had a little blackout, pass out somewhere in there and then all night. And I know I left that place, the show I don't know, sometime after midnight, ended up at somebody's house in the shore, Belmont Shore, a bunch of us there. And I definitely didn't have another drink after we got back to that house, or maybe I had one. So sometime in the early morning. I know we were up all night and, uh, you know, I did what I normally do and had, uh, I mean, this is what women alcoholics do. We don't always share it out loud in a mixed meeting, but, you know, I, whoever, whatever guy was there, you know, we went across the street and had sex on the beach in the morning. And then I called the rehab and said, okay, I'll be right over. <laughs> um, and I, I hadn't had a drink most of them, you know, most of that morning when I show, finally showed up at rehab and it was hilarious because I called there and said, uh, I'm going to be late. And they're like, well, send a cab for you. I'm like, I don't need to set a cab for me. I'm fine. <laughs> and uh they did send a cab for me, I think. But when I got there, you know, they do the thing where they check you in and they test your, you know, take your blood and they check your blood alcohol level and they take your knives and guns away from you and whatever, anything you could hurt yourself or anybody else with. 
And I remember they were having a graduation ceremony and I had to stand in a circle with a group of people, hold hands and say some prayer while somebody was being, you know, getting their discharge and their 30 day chip or something. It was just all crazy. When I, what I found out is that I had blood alcohol of 0.18 when I checked in and I hadn't had a drink in probably eight hours. So I was, I had a lot of alcohol that day, but I, I wasn't in that state of, it was just one of those weird times where I drank a lot, but I never felt drunk. I never felt that wahoo oblivion. I just was sort of semi-conscious the whole time. And I never really happened for me. Checked myself in and um, ended up staying sober in spite of myself. No idea why I did. Um, my sobriety, the first probably 10 years of sobriety, I made... I probably did everything that they recommend you don't do. And, and I stayed sober and I can tell you for sure that had nothing to do with me. So I feel like that was a long time of qualifying, but, um, you know, I did get sober young. I did, um, not, you know, I, I think I went to, I I did go to jail one time overnight for lewd conduct. (laughs) Um, but I never, you know, there was so many things. I never got pulled over for drunk driving. I drove drunk all the time. Um, I never suffered legal consequences for what I did. I suffered a lot of personal consequences. I broke a lot of relationships and I hurt a lot of people. And I hurt myself a lot. But I, I just didn't have any idea what I was doing. So when I got sober, I really, I don't know if I really came to consciousness. I just knew I was going to try. And I really knew that I didn't have much else to do. I was, I was very hopeless and I was very hopeless for a long time. One of the things that triggered me, I knew I, I knew I was an alcoholic for a few years before I started to stop drinking. I had a, I was always in and out of therapy, right? Cause I was a problem child. I was in therapy when I was in fifth grade. I was in therapy as a teenager. I was bulimic. I was the person that something was always wrong with. And one of the therapists that I had, she said to me, you know, at some point, you know, I need you to not come in here when you're loaded. I really don't want you to come in here when you're hungover. And all of the things you're talking to me about are never going to change until you stop drinking. And that statement stuck in the back of my head. I never forgot that. I didn't, of course, stop drinking at that time. I did when I had started to go to a couple meetings, um, you know, pick up those 20 questions and have those 20 questions in my apartment. And remember drinking with my friends and we'd take the 20 questions and laugh and ha ha ha. And we'd answer, you know, most of them. Yes. If you don't know what the 20 questions are, it's a pretty cool pamphlet that kind of helps you sort of see if you have the behaviors and thought patterns of, being an alcoholic. And, um, and I did, and I knew that I had a drinking problem and I knew that nothing was going to change until I stopped drinking. And really I stopped drinking to stop the pain. I really just wanted to stop the pain. Um, the drinking part, I could have continued for a while. Uh, you know, staggered through life for a while before I hit another big bottom. But my, like I said, my life was dragging a bottom. I just did not have, I never really got much off of it. So I got sober in that 30-day program, and they said I needed to get a God, 
or pray. They said I needed to pray. You know, that was my, that was the thing. I don't want to talk about God. God was repulsive to me. It just put the hairs up on the back of my neck. Any, anything that had to do with religion, anything that had to do with the God word that freaked me out. And, and, um, it freaked me out. I had some, you know, pretty negative experiences with some people, you know, attacking me in the name of God and telling me I was going to hell. I didn't do whatever they said, you know, just weird stuff. And uh, I had no, no, I was anti-God. I hated God. I would tell you I was like the atheist. I talked about it all the time. They told me I needed to pray that that, that was part of the deal. And so I made myself willing to just uh, attempt to do the process of praying whatever that was i didn't know what it was i didn't know how to do it i just said okay i'm willing to try and uh i don't i can tell you that i didn't i didn't have any concept of god i just knew that i was willing to try um and so i stumbled through the beginning of my sobriety you know i was young i met some young people we did some fun things I needed to have some people that were fun, you know, that were doing things that were my age so that I could stay sober, so that I could, um, you know, you feel like it's the end of your world. When when I quit drinking, they talk about the hole in the donut. What are you going to feel that with? It's just, you just have this vast empty space. Who will I be if I am not this drunk? Who will I be? I won't, I will cease to, I don't know why that is such a fear. But there's such a huge fear around letting go of that person. And um, it's a fear. It's a huge fear. And what I learned in sobriety is that fear was my driving force. I, I was afraid of everything. I didn't know that. I just reacted to it. I just reacted to fear. Um, It wasn't until I experienced some time period without fear in sobriety that I was able to recognize what fear was. And that probably came six years in. I just had no idea how fear, I didn't know what fear was. I just reacted to it. It was like a glass wall I kept bumping into. I didn't see it, but I'd bump up against fear and I'd just go the other way. I wouldn't, I wouldn't face it. I wouldn't deal with whatever it was. I just went, went away from it. And, um, so I, I, so in early sobriety, I made a lot, I did, like I said, all the things you say you aren't supposed to do. You know, I, I got a boyfriend right away. I, I used to have a sponsor who, who went from the podium would always say, you know, they tell us not to get into a relationship in our first year, but I don't know that works because nobody really ever does that. <laughs> um, we make a lot of mistakes in sobriety. We do a lot of things that aren't good for us. And and if we are lucky and if for some reason we're willing to be willing, some of us are, are able to get sober. And I don't know why some of us are able to get and stay sober and why some of us are not. It's It's truly a puzzle. You know, I've seen people working the program so diligently and being so much of service. Of course, I don't know what's going on on their inside, but just being shocked that they ended up getting loaded because I would see them doing so much around here. And doing so much around here absolutely does not hurt. It is definitely helpful, but um, you just don't know who's going to make it and who doesn't make it. I never thought I would be one who's who's got sober and stayed sober. 
I mean, I didn't plan on it. And if you, if you knew me, you certainly didn't think I was going to because I wasn't, I wasn't doing the deal. I did get a sponsor. I did attempt to work the steps. Um, I did go to meetings, but I never, I was sort of semi-conscious that whole time. And maybe everybody is, but I didn't know what the hell was going on. I was so self-centered and I wasn't willing. I wasn't willing. I was terrified of this thing. I was terrified of this program. I was terrified of new people. I was just terrified of everything. And so, you know, um, being of service, being, reaching out to people, reaching out to newcomers, um, being honest, letting go of, of letting people get to know me. All of that stuff was, was, I was shut, shut off from that. What I have some, some, uh, scandalous stories from early sobriety. And uh, one of them is that I had a boyfriend, like I said, you know, it, it, it revolved around guys. Cause that's what my life revolved around. I didn't have any connections with women in my life. Women in my life just broke my heart so many times growing up that I didn't, um, I didn't connect with them. I didn't let them in, uh, you know, so like many alcoholic women, I focused on the men and those were the people I hung around with. And it was, definitely not healthy but the so I did the same thing in sobriety and I focused on the men and you know I went out with the first guy I met in a meeting that wore a black leather jacket it was the 80s okay and uh then I went out with his best friend um and the guy was married and whatever you know it was just scandalous scandalous scandal oh yeah so, so many weird twists and turns to that story but um so had the boyfriend for, I don't know, a year and a half or whatever, and um, ended up breaking up with the guy because we were living together, but he just never came home. <laughs> and uh, so I, you know, after months of being a doormat, went, I think we need to break up. And it turned, and, and so the person that I turned to or the person that became my comforter was his sponsor. And being the alcoholic woman that I was, of course, that was the first person that I, you know, was with after I broke up with the guy. There was a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. Apparently, the guy that I was going out with, my boyfriend had another girlfriend and the sponsor was used to um, distract me sometimes. Uh, whatever. It's a crazy story that we do. And so he was the first person that I was with and I ended up staying with him and that was painful. So there you go do some scandalous stuff and make some bad decisions. That was the story in my first probably 10 years. And I stayed with that guy, the sponsor guy for four years. We ran away from Long Beach where I was from and he was a truck driver and I started driving truck cross country with him. And, um, you know, first I was just the passenger and then I got my license and we drove a team and he was abusive. He was abusive he was a gaslighter. I didn't know what that term was at the time. He um, raised his fist in anger at me a lot. He publicly humiliated me and shamed me. And uh, I learned later, of course, that he was, you know, he was, I don't even know why I learned later. He was a spouse. He hit all of the other women he'd been in relationships with. He never hit me, but I knew he'd hit people and he raised his fist in anger at me all the time. And um, it was painful. And I, I became, uh, dragging the bottom there again, you know, where I was stuck in this truck, you know, 
I used to say spitting distance from this guy. Um, and it was a nightmare. I mean, I learned a lot. I learned a lot, but it was a nightmare. I, I drove, um, with him. I ended up being the graveyard driver because he couldn't sleep during the day. So I drove all night and tried to sleep all day. Driving a truck, if you've ever done it, is super stressful. You're never the client. You're always the one getting yelled at. You're getting yelled at by the client. You're getting kept yelled at by your, you know, your company, your dispatch. You're you're under the gun to make do impossible things that require you to break the law. And if you break the law in order to do it, you know, by whatever, you're the one that's in trouble. And it's 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 uh, super super stressful. And I didn't. I wasn't practicing any tool except for. Um, I knew what the program was. I did, I started doing that about two years of sobriety. And so, and it, you know, this guy, this guy became my quote unquote sponsor and he probably had five years at the time or six years. Anyways, um, I, I, I wouldn't have said that at the time, but, you know, looking back, he was, he was my higher power. And, um, in spite of the sick, crazy, fucked up situation that I put myself in, I learned some stuff and it was really painful. <laughs> I learned, I learned a couple things, um, about God at that time. I learned, I learned, um, one epiphany was that I, um, I remember I was probably, I did, I did, I wrote, I was pretty much for four years riding a constant force truck in the <laughs> back of that truck bouncing up and down i5 or wherever the hell we were trying to trying to write this four step that just became massive and no, you know it was never i didn't have a sponsor anymore i was never you know it was just ridiculous don't go sponsorless <laughs> i'm here to tell you um but the i was reading some book i don't know codependent no more something and, um, you know, and it talked about this God thing and the thing said, um, we didn't, we felt like God abandoned us. And I truly, truly felt that. And, but the truth is we abandoned God. And I was so pissed. I remember throwing that book across the truck. I was so pissed. How could you say that I abandoned God? Like, and I popped up into the front of the cab and I was saying all this to him. And, uh, and I was citing the story, you know, I just clearly remember being a little kid and I was always in trouble and I was always doing the wrong thing. And I remember praying cause I, you know, cause that's what you did. Um, like, God, please help me be good today. I don't want to get in trouble. Help me be good. And, and of course I wasn't good. You know, what did I, I was, I remember being out riding my bike and doing whatever I wasn't supposed to do, riding my bike in the street on the wrong side of the street or something. And my mom drove by. Cause you know, it was the seventies and they didn't care where we went. <laughs> and, uh, and I got, and I was busted. Right. And I remember clearly thinking at that moment that God had abandoned me, that there was, I was not qualified to have God in my life. Cause here I asked God to help me be good. And I wasn't. And, um, and I just was so pissed at that moment when I read that statement, like, how could I have abandoned God? I was just a fucking kid. And I didn't choose to, you know, like, you know, I just was mad and angry and I'm like, I didn't choose to abandon God or whatever. And you know, I was expressing all this self-centered anger. 
And he, he said to me, he said, you know, maybe God thought you were good enough. And that fucking broke me. Like the fact that maybe I was, you know, maybe it wasn't, maybe God thought I was good enough that I wasn't bad. It it was a huge epiphany. It was a huge paradigm shift in my thought life. Um, that there was a possibility that there might, that, that I might've been okay in God's eyes. That just never even occurred to me, you know, and that, that became the source of all my anti-God stuff was that anger and feeling of being abandoned. Um, one of the inventories that I wrote, the, my, the sponsor at that time, well, actually it was one of the inventories that I wrote when I was driving that truck. And I had, I finally did get a sponsor and I was like, can I read my fist up to you? And she, she's like, okay, yeah, but I want you to write about this. And she asked me to write about all my old ideas about God, old ideas. I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, whatever you think God is, you know, don't, don't, don't think what you don't tell me what you think God should be, but what are, what are your old ideas? What did you grow up thinking about God and feeling about God? And as I wrote that out, I realized that there was this fear there's always fear. Fear is everything. And I wrote that out. And I remember the thing that kind of came out was at the time, there was a lot of Hare Krishna stuff going on. (laughs) And my fear was that I would be, if I let God into my life, if I like believed in a God, I would have to go and wear some crazy robes to the airport and sell pencils and shave my head. Like that was my vision of, you know, turning yourself over to God. You had to do some crazy untenable thing. Or I was going to be one of those people that was yelling at me for not doing the God thing. You know, I was going to hell. It's just, there was so much fear there. And when I read that out loud in my fifth step, it, I didn't realize how powerful that was until I said it out loud and it choked me. You know, I just choked up and, and it was powerful. Like, oh my God, I was so afraid. I was so afraid to try to believe in a God. Um, I didn't know that, you know, I didn't know any of that. And, and some that, that's so, what's so powerful about the fourth and fifth is you write it down and then when it, you know, it might be significant and wow, powerful when you write it down, but then other things you don't know, I didn't know were going to be so powerful were immensely powerful when I read them out loud to another person. I just don't know what's kind of come of that. I started talking about the fourth and fifth step. But I didn't talk about steps one, two, and three. And those are important. Those are amazing steps. And I, you know, I know a lot of people talk about practicing steps one, two, and three, one, two, and three. Recently, in the last few years, started um, learning about this thing called two-way prayer. And there's a guy with a whole bunch of sobriety named Father Bill Wegmore. He has a podcast called Two-Way Prayer. And my sponsor introduced me to it. I didn't understand it. And in a time of crisis, I remembered she talked to me about that and I started searching it on the internet. And I found this podcast and I listened to this podcast and it introduced me to what two-way prayer is something that the original um, members, um, Dr. Bob, Bill, and their wives practiced. They were all members of the Oxford group, which if you've probably heard of as something that was um, something that they were all involved in in early before AA was AA. And one of their practices was a daily, um, a daily quiet time where they wrote down 
something to God, sort of wrote out a prayer and then had a moment of quiet and then let God write back in a, in a sense, that's a really short version of it. But um, I listened to his podcast and he talks about his first podcast, 2018 two way prayer. You can, if you find it and you're interested, it starts in December of 2018 and he starts that first podcast. He goes through the 12 steps and um, sort of in the view of early AA and he talks about steps one, two, and three in the most powerful way. I'd never heard anybody talk about them. And it's so simple and, and we can make it so complicated. You know, step one, are you hopeless? And God knows I was hopeless for a long time before I got sober. And I was hopeless for a long time in sobriety. Are you hopeless? Are you hopeless? That's step one. Step two, he says, um, you know, step two is came to believe that a power that greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I, um, that step stuck me for so long. And I was hung up on restore me to sanity because I never felt sane. And I thought that I wouldn't, I couldn't be restored to something that I had never had. Um, but the way he describes it is, is it possible? Is it possible that there is some power greater than you? Is it just possible? That's all you have to, all you have to agree to is, is it possible? And um, I'm like, oh, okay, I guess it is possible. You don't have to buy the whole thing. You don't have to have an idea of God. All you have to do is just think, is it possible? Um, Is it possible? Is it also possible that this power could do for me what I could not do for myself? That's all you're all you're agreeing to is the possibility that there is a power greater than you. And then the third step is ask God who you say could exist for help. And of course they did this on their knees in early sobriety, but that's still something that I struggle with. Um, I can do that privately on my own, but I don't know if I could do it with another person. I, I, I could, but I have chosen not to maybe once I did that, but that's it is, are you hopeless? Is there something more powerful than you that could exist? And step three, just asking that power that, or, you know, asking that power that you say could exist to help, you know, to help. And that's it. And he talks about those first three steps as marriage vows, in a sense. Like you get married, you don't, you don't say your marriage vows every day. You say them once and then you live them. And um, that's his philosophy on steps one, two, and three. And those made them so accessible and so simple. And I have made them so complicated for so long. Um, and then he talks about, you know, steps five, six, seven, eight, nine of the correction steps. And then living in steps 10, 11, and 12. Um, it just, learning about that stuff changed my world. And he talks about it. As I know I'm telling him a story right now, but it mirrors my story is that about 20 years sobriety, he was stale in sobriety and he was looking for something. And I have experienced that in sobriety, just feeling um, stuck and regressing. And, at, and he did too. He felt stuck and he was 
needing something more. And he did some investigative work and discovered this, this thing. Um, discovering that two-way prayer um, made a big difference in my life. So back to my story, I, um, you know, I struggled through those first crazy years of making some really bad decisions. God intervened in my life at about six years of sobriety. I got, I got enough courage with God's help to get out of that situation with the boyfriend, the truck driver. And, uh, I had some really big epiphanies during that time. I, um, I learned about a little bit about step two at that time because I, we were constantly broke and, um, and there was always, you know, and then this crazy thing would happen where I'd have this big giant bill and then money would show up that I wanted, that I selfishly wanted to spend on fun stuff, but I had the money to pay that big giant bill. In retrospect, I would go, wow, that was really something like that was really something that that happened. I wonder if that was like a God thing. And, um, but that started, those situations like that started opening my brain up to, um, the possibility that, that God might've been working in my life. And there was one particular incident that happened. So, um, I had two accidents while I was driving truck. One, neither one of them were my fault, nor could I do anything to prevent them. The first one I was driving in Arkansas and I was, it was three lanes. I was in the middle lane. There was a truck on my right. A truck came passing me on my left. And I did what I was trained to do, you know, focus down the lane, focus so that I could stay in the middle of my lane and I'd make sure I didn't drift left or right. And the car, the truck passed me on the left side swiped me. And uh, I couldn't see anything, of course, because the side mirror was, was taken off. And, uh, and I had, there was nothing I could do. I couldn't have done anything to prevent that, but I, I struggled for so long. I just had nightmares, day mirrors, because I was sleeping during the day, like, I, I just of being out of control driving that truck and I couldn't control it and I couldn't control it. And, um, the second accident was in Texas and I had, was in a particularly screwed up place. I was always, always angry when I was driving a truck and this particular one, I was stuck in Houston. It was hot. I wanted to get home for some event and I needed to get to Phoenix to get a load dropped off and then I could get home for something. And, um, and I was waiting and waiting and waiting and I wasn't getting this load on my truck. And finally, at the last possible minute, um, they loaded my truck and it was a load of Bud, Bud Light. And Bud Light beer is heavy. So they space it out in the truck, which makes it kind of unstable because it's not up bumped against the walls. Anyways, I was driving, um, left Houston, driving towards San Antonio and, uh, it started to pour one of those summertime crazy downpours where it's super loud. I could not read freeway signs. And there was like cars and pickup trucks spun out on the side of the road because it was just so much water on the, on the road. It, and I slowed way down and I was going through a construction zone and the boyfriend who was sleeping in the back gets up, sits in the jump seat. He's in his underwear, smoking a cigarette. And he's like, and the rain had woken him up because it was so loud. And he's like sitting there looking at me, going, "What are you going to goddamn slow for?" And I was just like, "Dude, I, you know, I didn't say anything." Um, and as I went through this construction zone, and then I came up on, you know, sort of an overpass, two lanes. This car passed me on the left, and it just as it passed me, he hit his brakes and he started hydroplane, and he's just swerving over towards the right, right in front of me. And I remember screaming, "Oh God, no!" 
and hitting the brakes as hard as I dare and heading for the shoulder, trying to get out of this guy's way, hoping he gets his, gets it together before I, before we meet. Right. So I head over towards the shoulder. This guy keeps coming and I end up T-boning that car right in the passenger side. Like, and I couldn't see it, you know, a big truck with a hood. I could not see the vehicle. I had no idea. I finally brought it to a stop and I had to jump out and look. I was terrified. And I just remember, you know, because I'd had that previous accident, like, God, no, why me? Why me? And as I jumped out of the truck, this voice popped into my head and it says, it doesn't matter why, just deal with it. I was like, what? And I went over there, looked, the everybody was alive. The car was not underneath the truck, which was my fear. Um, and, uh, you know, and the situation played out as it does, you know, the cops came, uh, the girl on the passenger seat was okay. Uh, she had a probably a crushed foot. Um, I had to go to get drug tested. You know, it was an all night affair. It was probably nine in the morning by the time we were able to keep, get going again. And, uh, I remember falling asleep and waking up probably at five or six in the evening and having the first unselfish thought I'd ever, ever had in my life. The first unselfish thought I was so grateful that everybody was alive. I had this sense of there are things more important than me for the first time ever. And, you know, I was always uptight and pissed off about the money and pissed off about not getting my way and not getting where I wanted to be, you know, I was all pissed off all the time. And I needed to get to Phoenix by a certain time so I could get that load off so that I could get home. And that wasn't going to happen. And I didn't care anymore. I didn't care about the money. I didn't care about anything. I just knew that I was grateful. And it was the most, it was a life changer. I'd never experienced anything like that. And, uh, and then subsequently my life changed. And after that fact, I was able to get away from that guy another God shot, you know, where I was praying and writing and this window opened up where I was just had this clear message that if you don't get out of here now, you might never get out. And I planned it and I, I was afraid. So I, you know, I was afraid what was going to happen of what he was going to do. And I didn't consult him about it because I knew what his plan was. And it wasn't the same as mine. And I got out of there and I just had so many God shots along the way. Like one of them came from the, what used to be the general telephone, (laughs) um, where, you know, I wanted, I wanted his, that number at the house canceled because at the time, you know, long distance bills, there was no cell phone. And, um, and it was, I was freaking out and I needed to get canceled right away because he was going to run up my bill and blah, 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 blah. And I'm calling the lady on the phone. I'm like, I need to get that phone bill out of my name now and blah, 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 blah. And she's, you know, telling me, and the voice from the general telephone lady was like, does it really matter that much if it's a few dollars or something like that? I can't even remember the word she used, but she was the voice of sanity. Like lady, you're freaking out. Calm the fuck down. It's not that important. And the lady on the phone, you know, the lady from general telephone gave me the message that I'm worrying about selfish things. And that's not the most important thing we're doing here. Um, Little things like that that started to happen. After that time, you know, I was um, li- I was living in the desert. I was living in Landers, California, and I um, and I was living. 
I can't go into all of the details, but it's all very crazy. Living in this little house out in the middle of nowhere, trying to prove that I could live in the middle of the desert by myself. I had this 49 Dodge panel truck and a dog and I, and working at Stater Brothers, living in Yucca Valley. I showed up at the morning uh, meeting at the Alano Club after work when I was after graveyards. And that was the first place that I ever heard the seven step prayer because they said it every morning in their attitude adjustment meeting. And that also gave me another, uh, another way towards God where it said, God, you know, my creator, I'm now willing to have all of me good and bad. It never occurred to me that I could have a God in my life if I wasn't perfect. You know, I'm willing to have all of me good and bad. It never occurred to me that I could allow it. I, I, it was possible for me to have a higher power in my life even though I was still making mistakes and still doing crazy shit. It was, a, you know, it was crazy. Um, and I was doing things that I couldn't stop. I mean, I couldn't stop being bulimic and I couldn't stop seeing this guy that I couldn't stand and whatever. You know, I just was, I couldn't stop. I, I had a, um, I had an opportunity to get, move out of the desert and back into Long Beach. And, um, I don't know, things just happened at that time. Things happen in crisis, you know, sitting, one of the things I, I read about in a Buddhist meditation book is sitting in the middle of a fire. You know, I was in the middle of a of fire and I was going through it and things started happening because I started opening myself up. You know, I started having, um, I started changing. I was able to, um, think that it was possible that I could do something different and I could have a life. Um, I was in therapy. I had a sponsor. I was working steps in OA as well as AA or actually NA at the time. Um, but I had this opportunity, this guy that I knew, um, from high school, basically we connected and he called me to tell me that he had gotten sober and it was amazing. And he actually called me the day I was moving out of that boyfriend's house. Um, and he ended up finding, you know, getting a situation where I could end up moving. I had a, a way to move back to Long Beach with my dog, like finding a place to live with the dog is kind of hard. I got, if I found a job, I would get to move back to Long Beach. So I went to Long Beach, found a job and moved back to Long Beach and started going back to school. And, um, the fact that I was willing and, and able to go back to school was huge because I had failed I'd dropped out. I'd been kicked out. I'd been on academic suspension for four years after high school. And I just gave up on that and, um, became a truck driver and a cocktail waitress, right? Um, but the, the, I got to move back there and I got to start, um, doing something different with my life. And, um, and I still was sponsorless. At that time, I had been, you know, as a sponsor for the first couple of years and then I hit and miss around. I didn't have, um, you know, I became separated from the people I knew in early sobriety when I was truck driving. That was no mistake, of course, because, you know, abusers tend to separate you from the people in your life. And that's what I totally bought into. Not saying it's his fault. I bought into it. And um, I got back to Long Beach and I, I eventually accidentally found a sponsor, you know, somebody that came into my work that I knew I had recognized from a long time ago in sobriety. And I told on myself I had done something um, and I needed to confess. And she, uh, she gave me her number and I called her and 
she just said, let me be your temporary sponsor. And she became my temporary sponsor. And then she became, and I just never quit her (laughs) for a long time. And working with that person was the first woman I had 10 years of sobriety, let her in, let her in and became willing to trust a little bit. And it was through working with her that I was willing to do things in sobriety that I wasn't willing to do before. I was willing to go to women's meetings, which I wasn't willing. And then women's meetings with old ladies in it, for God's sake. You know, like, God, I didn't want any of that. And uh, and, and I became willing to try to learn how to have a friend, women friends in sobriety. I couldn't do it. And I was so scared and I didn't know how to have friends. And of course, I picked people who were, you know, as sick as I was um, to be my friends. And those friendships were like, okay, they were crazy and sick. And we all kind of ended up in a crazy place. But um, I learned how to trust and how to be a friend. And that was such a vulnerable time for me. Um, And eventually I became to have women in my life. And I became, started to be get in the middle of the herd, you know, for so long in 10 years of sobriety, I was on the outskirts of sobriety. I was on the outskirts of society. I didn't want to get all the way in. I was so, so scared. And it was a long time for me to begin to be willing to get in the middle. And I got in the middle, slowly but surely. And I learned that I suffered from depression after about 10 or 12 years. I didn't know that. I thought depression meant you didn't want, I thought as long as I didn't want to kill myself, I wasn't depressed. But it turns out I have these major depressive episodes. And, um, and I learned how to deal with that. And I learned that that definitely cycles through my life and it definitely affects what I do in sobriety. I learned that as long as I take the footwork, if I'm doing the footwork, which is extremely painful when you're in a deep, deep depression, make those phone calls, keep showing up at meetings, um, that helps. And what it does for me is it helps me have fewer things to beat myself up for. If I do those acts, at least I can't beat myself up for not doing them. If that's one thing, then that's one thing. I ended up graduating from college at the age of 36. Um, I got to go to UCLA for the last two years, which was such a major self-esteem boosting thing. Like graduation day was biggest, most amazing day of my life. I never imagined that I could achieve anything. And um, I eventually, I got a, I was a, geologist for a little while then I became um, a teacher and um, I have been a teacher for 19 years um, my I got married I met this guy I re-met this guy that I knew he was just a sick motherfucker just like me <laughs> and uh, somehow it turned into a really amazing thing and uh, we both learned and grew and uh, ended up getting married about six or seven years after we started going out and we've been married for a while now gosh 19 years no since 2004 whenever that was and um, I do teach math but you know don't ask me I'm off duty the the things in my life started changing and the thing that I feel like I've learned the most in the last few years is, you know, I struggle. I struggle. I struggle in sobriety. I'm never, I'm never, you know, always doing it perfect. And I feel like it's important to share the struggle because when I, when I'm struggling and I am in a meeting and I hear people, 
only sharing, you know, quoting from the big book and making it sound like their life is perfect. I can't relate to that. I don't have a perfect life. And I don't know how to quote from the big book unless I write it down. You know, like I, um, I can't relate to somebody who looks perfect. I can relate to people who look flawed and have struggled and stayed sober. And we are all flawed. There ain't nobody out there who's living a perfect life. And if you think they are, think again. What what I've learned is that we all grow in different areas. You know, I struggle with the area of depression and isolation and self-centeredness. Other people struggle in the area of financial security. Other people struggle in relationships. Other people struggle in the job area. I mean, other people struggle with relationships with their children. We all have these areas where we just not getting, we're, we're not as healthy as we'd like to be. And, and just because I struggle in this area doesn't mean I don't have a lot of growth in others. And when I sit in a meeting and I want to judge because I'm feeling like shit about myself and I want to judge others to make myself feel better. If I'm judging them, I don't know what other areas they have that they could help me with. We're all just human and um, we all get to have this progress and get better and we might not get perfect. And the thing about having our character defects removed is that they, um, you know, might get removed for a, a moment while we can be useful and then they might come back. But that's the, that's the, that's the prayer is, you know, please remove for me every single defect of character that stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Like, I get to have them removed so that I can be useful, not because I'm whiny and I don't want to feel bad. You know, I get to be removed. I get to have them removed to be useful. And one of the, um, my favorite quotes is out of the 12 and 12. It's on page 124. And I can't remember, I think it's in the 12 step. And it says, one does not have to be especially distinguished among fellows in order to be useful and extremely happy. And that is in the middle of the herd. That is being mediocre. We're all mediocre. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's great. We might be really good in one area, but I have to be okay being mediocre and just being one of many. I don't have to strive for that perfection. Or if I strive for that perfection, I'm going to be disappointed. I'm going to be let down and I'm going to use that as something to beat myself up with. Um, I, I know that what I've, the, I'll just, and with this is um, prayer and meditation have become much more prominent in my life in the last few years. I've learned so much through this thing called two-way prayer. And um, I've learned how to pray and how to meditate. It's sort of a way of meditating for those of us who are not good meditators. Um, for those of us who have a hard time sitting still and calming our mind, it's an active way of meditation. And um I've, I've learned some amazing things through this two-way prayer. And yes, you are writing out your prayer and asking for guidance. And then you're writing the response as if from God. And I'm not explaining it all perfectly. But um, what, what Dr. Father Bill says, you know, the, the question is, how do you know that's just not coming from me and not God? And he says, it really doesn't matter. If, if it's coming from you, it's coming from your best possible you. And the things that I've learned in that response have changed me in such a big way. Um, I know that we all struggle and I know that this program is a path towards recovery. And I have been sober for a long time and I'm not perfect, but I have grown so much and I 
I'm a citizen today and I have a life and a career and a car that's paid for with registration and insurance and it has power windows and air conditioning, which is huge. And, um, and I am a citizen, but I never thought I could be a citizen. I never thought I would be somebody who could contribute to society. I just always thought I would be dragged in the mud and that's not the case. And you can have that too. You can have that too if you stick around. Life won't get perfect, but it'll get so different and so much better. Um, if you're new, stick around and help others. People that are newer than you are so envious of the amount of time you have. And you don't even know what you have to offer them. I'm 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 always happy to be have people that I can work with. It makes me feel useful and I need to feel useful in this life feel like I have a purpose and um AA has given me that and I'm extremely grateful and oh my god I'm gonna shut up now thanks for letting me share and um keep coming back thank you Lori this seems like such a good place to stop but we'll see if some of my questions add value to your story what thank you I'm absolutely gonna check out the two-way prayer I've I've heard it and you explained it much better than you think you did. Um, You talked a lot about fear and I I loved your image of hitting this glass wall, you know, that you just would, you didn't even know it was fear and you just kind of hit it and go another way. Do you still have fear in your life today? Um, Do you know why you had all this fear? And I'm asking because I can so easily relate, not only with your fear place, this constant fear and not realizing it's fear and changing the way you react to the world because of the fear, but also I think that's wrapped up, for me anyway, in my fear of not being loved or accepted by God. This, uh, This little prayer that you did please help me not get in trouble today. It's like, oh, you took me back to my childhood, right? Like, why do I have this fear or alcoholics in general have this fear of not being good enough or making mistakes? Or am I generalizing and do you not relate with my rambling that I'm doing here? So I guess my- I know. So you go. I totally relate. I totally relate to that. In fact, I I swear to God, it was probably 30 years of, when I had 30 years of sobriety and after I started practicing that two-way prayer um, that I started to discover how closed off I was from fear and how closed off I was from allowing me to feel like there was a higher power working in my life. I mean, fear, fear and faith, you know, fear and faith, fear and faith. They're definitely, um, they definitely, Definitely fear comes from lack of faith. Uh, I don't know why I didn't know what the fear was. I I was just a fearful, anxious person from the get-go. And um, and fear of not being loved, you know, that that just went back to my primary source. I got myself in trouble several times in the last six or seven years because of that fear, that fear of not being important, of being ignored, of being invisible, of being, um, I don't know how to describe it and, and not having, um, I don't know. That was just one of my core issues. And 
and I was afraid. So I was afraid of everything. I was afraid of people. I was afraid of being humiliated. And so I was, I learned in, at 30 years that I, the thing that tortured me my whole life was shame. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have a word for it. I just knew that deep, ugly, dark, nasty self-loathing that I couldn't put into words was shame. And I, I, I learned that from Brene Brown. Um, mm-hmm. I, I experienced and lived in shame all the time. And when you live in shame, of course, you're afraid of being more ashamed, I guess. And, um, and doing things that are going to make me want to kill myself or hate myself later. The, what I learned is that I had, I wish I could find my little journal right now where that happened. But there was one day when I was doing two-way prayer where I, I felt so disconnected and I didn't feel like there was a God in my life. It didn't feel like I had, you know, I, I did the actions, but I didn't internalize it. And one day it happened where, you know, like you have, I have to, f- I didn't realize that I needed to feel like God loved me. And of course I didn't feel like anybody could love me. Right. But I needed to feel like God loved me. And I couldn't understand that. Like, how is that possible? But I know I'm not lovable still, you know, I still have that. I'm not lovable feeling. And, um, what happened? I just was expressing that in my prayer and what came back was, okay, this is super corny, but I have dogs. I don't, I never gave birth. I have dogs. And what came back to me is how I unconditionally love my dogs. Even when they eat their own poop and tear, eat my glasses and, you know, eat my dinner when I walk away, you know, all those things they do that are, you make us crazy, but how much I love them. And I was able to imagine that God could love me in the same way. Like, even though I am not perfect and I say things that hurt people's feelings and I judge people and I do things that are imperfect, that God could love me in spite of that, that even though I I was not perfect, God could love me. And that whatever that shift was at that moment, I was ready to experience it. And I was able to feel differently about it but then it came a 30 years of sobriety dude i hope nobody has to wait that long but we get there when we get there right does that answer your question yeah or did i miss it no 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 i think we're we're saying the same thing and i think you talk about how this takes you 30 years of sobriety but you had talked about at the end of your share there about how we all kind of grow in different areas at different times so don't judge someone <clears throat> because you don't know where they're strengthening and where they're growing still right yeah, so that may have taken you a too. long time, but other things yeah. that that was just your thing, right? That was what that was your journey. That one took a little yep. bit longer. Yep. Um, and I definitely, definitely went like all the way around the block when I was just trying to get next door. You know, I did all this painful <laughs> 10 years of making, you know, anti AA, doing all the things that they said not to do to finally get to the point that I could have gotten had I not made those choices. But, you know. We, we learn what we learn. Well, Lori, you know, when you said your sobriety date, you're 5, 18, 87, I'm thinking, oh, she has so much sobriety, she's not going to remember how it was. Um, when I was new, I came into speaker meetings wanting to hear people that didn't have a lot of time. So they were closer to the pain that I was experiencing. I just wanted to know how to get sober. And that's all I needed AA for. And your story does such a great job of detailing how we can 
continue to grow if we stick around the rooms. And life, like you had said early on in your share, you had said it was just very painful to be you, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. the program gets us sober, but it, for me, and your story d- details this great way of how it actually makes life way less painful. It's still hard, right? But it actually has joy now. I didn't think people can actually have joy in their life. I thought joy was looking forward to the party, looking forward to the concert, looking forward to the wedding. Like that was joy, that excitement, that high. Mm-hmm. But joy yeah. is so much different, right? What is joy to you today? And what does Alcoholics Anonymous mean to you today? And we'll go out with that. Okay. Um, what you're describing as was what we thought joy was, was really just an adrenaline rush, right? Yes. I mean, we're just like hopped up. I just want to get high. Yeah. Um, getting excited about that. And, and joy today is, is freedom from fear and freedom from anxiety. You know, I'm somebody that struggles a lot with anxiety. And when I have moments of uh, freedom from that, I am so eternally grateful when I have those moments of, I don't know, laying on the beach and my heart rate calms down and I could come up blood pressure, you know, whatever that, that place is for you is for me, you know, when I feel that soft wind blowing over my body and it's warm and I just know that I'm safe. That's joy. Or joy is being in a group of women or with another woman that I just love the pieces that I can relate to, that we can connect at this level that I never imagined I would be able to connect with. Having that um, connection of the common things like you were talking about, the common things that we share and how they have experience in something that helps me and I might have experience in something that helps them. And together we're just being real and naked, not literally, but you know, or if you are, whatever. Um, but just having the, just having that experience of being able to be real with someone and not ashamed that, that, that's another joy. You know, I mean, there's the obvious joys, you know, like, Oh my God, I mean, this chocolate cake (laughs) (laughs) or whatever, you know, not this concert, but the internal like things that I am so grateful for. And those obviously don't happen all the time, every single day, which makes them sweeter. You know, and then one other thing that um, I learned, I, I study some Buddhism. I'm not really Buddhist, but there's so much good stuff on meditation and, and it so parallels our program in so many ways. And um, one of the one of the, the one of the things that this woman, I this Pema Chodron, she's a Buddhist nun and she was struggling with something and she was sharing that with her teacher. And her teacher said, there's no cure for hot and cold, you know, like. There's no cure for life. Life happens just because we experience pain doesn't mean we're doing it wrong. That's another huge thing. Just because we experience pain doesn't mean we're doing life wrong and doesn't mean we're doing the program wrong. It just means that pain is part of life and that you can't, you can't cure yourself from having life. Pain is going to happen. Um, it's what we do with that pain, you know, and getting into acceptance of, and not beating ourselves up because I'm having pain. I did that for so long. In my depression, if I am having pain, it's because I'm not doing the program right. If I am having, you know, and of course, sometimes that's true. Sometimes I'm not taking the action I need to take. But other times, I'm just using that to beat myself up even more. Um, Pain is just a part of life. And it doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. 
For more information, read the first 164 pages of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous or visit keepcomingback.net.